0: Great, so we're up to the last talk of the day. One of the areas, as you know, that's speeding along at an incredibly rapid rate is the evolving treatment and treatment strategies for hepatitis C. Um, It becomes even more complicated when you try to treat the co-infected patient. We're fortunate to have an expert on the treatment of uh, the co-infected patient with both HIV and hepatitis C. Christine Marks has been involved with uh, a bunch of the studies that are introducing the new agents into the co-infected patient. Uh, Although she's infectious disease trained, she also spends time in our division of hepatology um, at Cornell, and she is assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell. So Christy, help us out with hepatitis C, please.
1: Thank you, and I just wanted everyone to notice there's a new case on the web, the cow, um, and it's a coinfection case, so it's a good opportunity to kind of brush up your skills on coinfection. So I just need to. Yeah. So as um, Trip mentioned, I'm going to talk about coinfection today. I'm going to really focus in on treatment because I have 30 minutes and I know I' not going to keep you here late, so throw something at me if I'm going on and on half the time. So for the first question, um, have you... Sorry, I didn't do that. Uh, Am I advancing them or are you? One minute, okay. Some technical difficulty. So the first question's gonna be, have you managed any Hep C infection in your HIV? patients have you actually treated the hepatitis c yourself but we're stuck the um, oh yeah we can raise hands so how many people oh no we're, we're now we're going okay so have you treated the hep c yourself music please So half of people have have used I'm assuming interferon-based treatment in their patients. So good. So I'm talking to an experienced audience, so I'll, I'll um, try uh, I'll I'll give you the most up-to-date information, and then for those of you who are more be- beginners or haven't yet uh, treated a patient, I'm hoping that the information I provide you will will um, give you um, motivation or confidence to consider treating some of your own patients. So the The problem is large for the patients we treat. One in three are co-infected with hepatitis C. And in liver-related disease, the the biggest burden uh, of which is from hepatitis C, is uh, um, the leading cause of non-AIDS-related deaths in our patients, so it's important to consider. So today I'm gonna go over the standard of care treatment for hep C and co-infected patients. I'll talk about teleprovir and boseprovir, the two approved direct acting antiretrovirals, and talk about the lessons we've learned from treating mono-infected patients, since a lot more mono-infected patients have been treated with these drugs to date, and they're approved for treatment of mono-infected patients. I'll talk about some uh, treatment algorithms in a very practical way for treating genotype 1 infection. I'll also talk about what the available data of using these agents in uh, co-infected <laughs> patients, and then um, just stress some of the kind of unknowns in, in terms of using these drugs off label for treatment of hep C in co-infected patients. Then I'll emphasize some future treatment strategies that are going to be think are going to be promising for our patients, um, particularly interference sparing strategies, and then um, kind of get at how I make the decision of whether to treat now or to treat later. Again, just like HIV went to treat, hep C treatment's sort of an individualized decision at this point. So um, this is an example of of an algorithm for using pegylated interferon and ribavirin that that's from the European AIDS Clinical Society. And um, I, I like this because it takes into account the genotype, which is the most important thing to consider first when you're treating cope infected or treating any hep C infected patient, and it also takes into account treatment response. So, even for genotype 3, allows for a um, shorter, shorter treatment if there is a rapid response, and, and for genotype 1, uh, extended treatment if there is a, a um, slower response. Um, but as you can see in this next slide, treatment response overall using pegylated interferon and ribavirin for co-infected subjects, the cure rates are very low. So SVR rates, of, in most studies, less than 30%. So the uh, treatment is failing most patients, and it's important then to consider direct-acting antivirals, which we'll talk about. So um, we do know a lot of, though, about what predicts treatment response. The factors are listed here. I won't go through them all. But when I approach an individual patient, I do think about those factors. And this is a nice slide that I actually often use at the bedside and show patients and, and look at just the various predictors of how likely they are to be cured with pegylated interferon and ribavirin and can apply them um, in a way that gives them some sense of how likely they were to be cured or not. So for instance, a patient with genotype 3 who has a low baseline viral load, um, but does not have a favorable IL-28B type and um, has advanced disease, has what by this study is considered two protective factors and has a 75% chance of being cured with pegylated if you're ribavirin. You can see for genotype one, you have to have quite a few of these so-called protective factors to be, to have a response rate that, that um, approaches what we'd like to be able to offer patients, and that's why the direct-acting antivirals are usually a more optimal choice for for patients with genotype one. So I'm gonna focus in on talking about these. Um, The the two drugs that are approved, as probably most of you probably know, are protease inhibitors, completely different from HIV protease inhibitors. Um, They are not active against HIV at all. There's also polymerase inhibitors, both nukes and non-nukes. So a lot of the language we use in HIV translates into these new hep C drugs. And there's a different class, NS5A inhibitors, which are unique to hepatitis C. Then there's some other agents in development, but these are the furthest along, and I'll just um, focus on some of these. So the first two drugs I'm gonna talk about are teleprovir and boseprovir, both of which were approved um, in 2001, and really brought hep C treatment into a new era. So it's been an exciting time, as Tripp mentioned. So um, I'll show you the, the, um, the overall, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this slide given the short time of the talk, but the overall cure rates using these agents in patients with, who are treatment naive with genotype one uh, are in the 60 to 70% range, depending on whether you're using rosepravir or telapravir, and depending on the, the study design. Um, the, um, both of them offer about a 30% improvement over the control group, which was pegylated in interferon and ribavirin. And they've never been compared head to head, to my knowledge. So I showed you some of these factors that predict response to interferon and ribavirin. And one of the themes that we've learned is that these aren't as important when it comes, to when you add in a direct-acting antiviral. So here, I just have to figure out where my pointer is. I don't know if I have, do I have a pointer on here? It's where? Oh, separate, thanks. So um, here you can see that viral load, which is an important predictor when you're using interferon and ribavirin, becomes less of an important predictor when you add in telaprevir, And the same for some of the other um, predictors of treatment response holds true as well. So it's harder to find a clear cut clear-cut case where you may not want to use a direct-acting antiviral on weight. There's there, um, a single predictor probably doesn't hold that answer for an individual patient. Um, one of the most important lessons that's been u- learned from using uh, direct-acting antivirals with PEG interferon and ribo- ribavirin is that prior interferon responsiveness is the most important predictor. So we know, I don't have a slide representing this, but that Null responder Patients who had prior treatment, those who responded the most poorly to the prior treatment will respond the most poorly to retreatment when you add in a direct-acting antiviral, and that makes sense. So interferon responsiveness is, is probably the best predictor of how well you'll respond to the direct-acting antiviral. Another lesson from monoinfection we've learned is that treatment can be abbreviated when response is rapid, so that we can use response-guided therapy. For those um, patients who have a very rapid response, so those who are undetectable after four weeks of the triple therapy, we know that we can shorten treatment by approximately half of of the total duration of treatment. So it's another large benefit to adding in these drugs is that about a half half or more patients um, can do a shorter course of treatment when you're talking about treatment naïve patients. When we're talking about treatment experience patients, which I'm not focusing in on as much today, um, for those who, are, who, had, who were treated previously, except for relapsers, in the case of Procepravir, partial responders, they, they will need a full course of 48 weeks of treatment. This shows uh, futility rules. So the futility rules, or when to stop the treatment, because it's not working, differ when you add in a direct-acting antiviral than they did with interferon. So those um, rules about not having a two-log drop no, at week 12 no longer apply. For telaprevir, it's based on a week 4 being below a, a cutoff of 1,000. And people sort of, when they're you know learning about this, wonder where that came from. And the reason that cutoff was chosen was because that... If a patient has a viral load of 1,000 or more, they're usually actually on their way up. Their viral load has gone down and they're actually breaking through. So in order to prevent resistance from, resistance mutations from accumulating, um, it's best to stop treatment. So the futility rules, rules differ for teleprovir and bosepravir, and I'll show you those in a minute, but they're different than what we used for using peg and ribo alone. And of course, when you add in another agent, there's the possibility of increased side effects, and we do see that, and, and some kind of typical side effects have emerged with each of these drugs, and the side effect profiles differ, and it can help you um, in choosing which one's the most appropriate for your patient. Both of them can cause anemia, usually about a gram per deciliter more uh, hemoglobin drop than without using them, and then uh, teleprovere has uh, some some known side effects, including rash, as well as um, some a- anorectal pruritus or hemorrhoids, sort of various anorectal complaints. Whereas Bocepravir has this, uh, can have the side effect of dyskusia, which is a funny taste, or food may taste like meta- metallic taste in the mouth type of thing. <clears throat> Another issue to consider when you're deciding whether or not to use these drugs is the possibility of resistance. So, you know, as I showed you, most people will actually have a response and and have an SVR, but for those who don't, particularly those who break through on treatment, resistance will emerge. And um, the question is, how meaningful is this resistance? So we've learned learned a lot about or heard a lot about uh, HIV today, and and viral reservoirs um, in, in in like it, that's found in the latent memory T cells. Hep C has no such known reservoir. So if you uh, and it's thought that uh, only in replicating virus can you maintain the resistance only in the setting of replicating virus. So when, uh, over time, what is seen is that wild type will actually predominate in most patients who've been exposed to these drugs in the past. So it's possible that even if there was resistance, you may be able to use the same agent or an agent that um, has um, cross resistance in a future regimen. So it's a little bit different in HIV, although that remains to be proven. And then the possibility of drug-drug interactions is always a consideration, Um, and both of these are both substrates and inhibitors of CYP3A4, so the implications for uh, using antiretrovirals with them is obvious there. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes, because I know that's probably um, a big um, concern to this audience. So the studies look great, the drugs work well, but how do you actually use them? And what I recommend if you're using them for the first time, or even an experienced user, is to always use a treatment algorithm along with it. And that's because, the, as I mentioned, the stopping rules may differ, the regimens may differ, um, and it's, it's just uh, important to, have the, to look at the particular time points and, knowing, and having the data from a particular patient to know how to uh, guide that patient's treatment. So some of the things that you need to consider are the duration of treatment, the the regimen, and uh, some of the things that you need to consider to determine these: the duration of treatment, the regimen, and then the eligibility for response-guided therapy follow here, and the most important being prior treatment. And if they had prior treatment, what was their response? And that can sometimes be hard to track down. And if you can't track it down, I think you just have to go with the more conservative of of the um, potential responses. And then whether or not they have cirrhosis. Um, Cirrhosis requires longer duration of treatment and also is associated with poor response to treatment. So it's important to know cirrhosis, yes or no, which is where some of the importance of of doing a liver biopsy or some other type of fibrosis um, fibrosis staging comes into play. And then I'll show you in the um, next graph how then you you can apply response-guided therapy as well as the sort of stopping rules. So here's, um, I'm gonna show you the treatment algorithms that I use, these are some I made, but the product information for both of these drugs has algorithms in, in the product guides, which are very good. Um, so for, um, for bosepravir based treatment, you start with a PEG interferon ribavirin lead-in, and then you add in bosepravir at the fourth week. And it, after four weeks of triple therapy, you make your first assessment for response guided therapy. If the person still has virus detected at all, um, they, are, they are not eligible for uh, response guided therapy. If they do not have virus detected, they are eligible and they can complete a total of 28 weeks um, with the rest of it being the triple therapy. If they had virus detected, they're gonna be on the 48 week track. And then you can employ the stopping rules for Bosepravir at week 12 and week 24 to, de- to determine if treatment's not working, when you should stop it. For Telepravir, it's a little bit different strategy. You give all three drugs right off the bat, continue them for 12 weeks, and at week 12, um, based on the week four and the week 12 response, you decide whether or not the person's eligible for the shorter treatment. If, if they do have, if virus is not detected, then they're eligible for uh, to complete after 24 weeks. Whereas if virus was detected, they're in for 48 weeks. And then you, can, you apply stopping rules at week four, for the reason I showed you in the earlier slide, week 12 and week 24. So if you have those alongside you, or, um, it, it helps just not to make an error sort of in deciding what the regimen is. And there, there's different algorithms based on what the prior treatment response is and whether or not the patient has cirrhosis. So. So with respect to boceprevir, first question for you, with respect to boceprevir and teleprevir, the studies of co-infected patients with the data presented to date use the same regimens and stopping rules approved by the FDA for mono-infected patients. True, false, or I don't know. So those algorithms I just showed you, is that what's studied in the co-infected? Okay, so it was mixed and a a fair amount of people just don't know. So the answer is no, the algorithm I just showed you isn't what has been studied or presented to date. There are more ongoing studies with algorithms more similar to that or regimens more similar, but what's been studied to date, there has been no response guided therapy studied in co-infected patients to date. So I just wanna make that point clear. Any data you've seen on co-infected subjects has been with 48 weeks of treatment. So um, I'll go through the two studies that have pre- been presented. Um, first, the Tleprivir study. And uh, in this study, there were two groups. One group had no history of antiretrovir- no was on no antiretrovirals. And the other group, they could either have been on uh, a tripla or an Adazanavir-based uh, regimen with two nukes. And so, um, like I mentioned, it was similar in that everybody got triple therapy for 12 weeks, and then followed by a peg riba tail, although everybody got 48 weeks of treatment, there was no response guided therapy. And just to note, efavirenz does increase the uh, metabolism of teleprovir, so a higher dose of teleprovir was used in, in patients who were on efavirenz. And what responses did we see? So. Um, this is based on what regimen the patients were on. You can see it didn't seem to really matter. The, the numbers are small in each group, so there's no significant difference here. And then overall, 74% of patients were, uh, had an, a sustained virologic response, so appeared to be cured of their hep C. So it's a very good response. And this is not from the same study, but just showing you similar to what was seen in the studies of hep C mono-infection. And you can see it's about a 30% improvement over what was seen with PEG alone. Now, these numbers for co infected patients are quite high with PEG alone, so it may be sort of a um, cherry picked population or, you know, it's a small numbers. So, so the responses are great, but this is a little bit, like I said, higher than what we normally see with PEG alone, just to keep that in mind. In terms of tolerability, it was generally well tolerated, and no side effects emerged um, in patients that had not been seen in, in prior studies of hep C mono infected patients. So for Bosepivir, uh, again, they, it followed a similar uh, type of regimen as what was done in the mono-infected pa- studies, giving the four-week lead-in, then adding in the Busepivir. Uh However, again, no response-guided therapy. Everybody got 44 weeks of triple therapy with Bosepivir following the lead-in. In this study, they actually excluded NNRTI uh, and an RTI, so there was no efavirenz. And that was because of a concern of interaction between efavirenz and Bosepravir that we'll talk about in a minute. And what you can see is that Bosepravir uh, also improved the SVR rate with, um, at the uh, 61% of patients, um, compared to 27% with peg alone. And again, similar to what was seen in their mono-infected. And you can see with Boseprovir, in contrast to telaprevir. This is after four weeks of triple therapy, but you'll see that more people become undetectable as time goes on. So people don't suppress quite as quickly as they do with teleprovir, and that's why the futility rules are uh, at later points, the week 12 and the week 24. Again, it was uh, generally well tolerated, and there were no uh, different side effects that emerged in co infected patients. So, question Does the use of boseprovir with boosted PIs? such as adazanavir, ritonavir, durunavir, lopinavir, lead to excessive risk of both hep C and HIV virologic failure? Yes, no, or no data exists to answer this question. Okay, great, so still um, some differing opinions. This question, it doesn't have you know, an exact right answer, but um, I, I would probably go with number two based on some data that is out there, but I think that a lot more needs to be learned and is gonna be learned in future studies, and I'll tell you why I would go with answer two. So there is some data, that's why I don't think answer three, is, but maybe it's not adequate data to convince you. So from that study that I just showed you of using Voseprivir in co-infected patients, uh, they, these regimens were allowed, so they did allow boosted, protease inhibitors into the trial. Now, later, uh, data emerged to show in, from healthy volunteers showing that there were drug interactions between these agents and Bosepravir, which is why many of you may think they, uh, you know, that data exists that they shouldn't be used together. It's the healthy volunteer data that did show PK interactions that were concerning, and I'll show you those in a minute. But actually, when you looked at how these subjects did, um, what was seen is that the responses in terms of the um, Hep C treatment were similar amongst all these groups, and if anything, a little better, but you know, numbers are very small. But there was no signal that people who were on the protease inhibitors were failing Hep C treatment. They also looked, was there any HIV breakthrough or was that a concern? And what they found is actually the group, um, there were twice as many people who received Bocepravir, so there were three but there were only three breakthroughs in the Revere treated group compared to four in the RIBA. So, percentage-wise, there were actually less HIV breakthroughs. And they had a very you know, conservative definition of breakthroughs, so that even um, things that maybe would count as blips were considered breakthroughs. So again, there was no signal that there were increased HIV breakthroughs, but the numbers are very small, and it certainly warrants further study to know if these PK interactions are important. I would think particularly for people who may be on more salvage HIV regimens where, you know, they're that um, even slightly lower drug levels may matter more to them. So those probably were not the patients in this study, considering um, what regimens were allowed into the study. So next question. Does use of bocepravir with the faverins lead to excessive risk of hepsi virologic failure? Yes, no, or no data exists to answer this question. So again, this is, is there more failure of the hep C treatment when you use these two drugs together? Okay, and, and people put yes, and this, I probably was based on what I told you, that they didn't allow efavirenz because of the concern of drug interactions, but actually there's no data on whether if you did allow those two together, would there be increased hep C breakthroughs? So I would go with answer number three. But what is known is from healthy volunteers that if you give a efavirenz and revere together, you can decrease the revere troughs by as much as 44%. So that is usually what would be considered a meaningful PK interaction, but it's actually not known, particularly based on um, what we know about some of the other drugs and that the, uh, there were not increased hep C breakthrough scenes. So no, um, and also, based on the mono-infected studies, there was no correlation be- between Bosepivir trough levels and sustained virologic response rates. So it's not clear you know, how important these are. I think it's something that needs to be looked at and will be looked at in future studies. Um, and this is just showing that um, the protease inhibitors um, levels are also lowered by Bosepravir. So there is a concern, as I mentioned before, that subjects who you know, may have tenuous HIV control, that Bosepravir could, could lower those drug concentrations and put them into trouble. So I still think an abundance of caution should be used and probably if they're going to use them together, it should be as part of a study. Next question: Does use of tenofovir with boosted PI at a zanavir ritonavir lead to excessive risk of HIV virologic failure? Yes, no, or no data exists to answer this question. So most of you put no, and I would agree with that answer. So this was one of the regimens that was allowed in the study. There were no increased um, breakthroughs in terms of hep C control. And also in terms of just drug interaction from healthy volunteers, there's um, no concern when it comes to the HIV levels that you will have lower levels of atazanavir. In fact, if anything, it's a little bit increased levels. So at least to me, maybe you have a different take on it, but these are not necessarily intuitive. So you always have to go, sort of go to a uh, resource or rely on studies that have looked at these interactions um, together. And one such place to look is the DHHS guidelines. They actually nicely went through recommendations based on what HIV regimen is on, which uh, protease inhibitor for hep C to consider. And unfortunately, though, many of the combinations that our patients are on just haven't been studied. And they're not even being allowed in studies. So there's a lot of patients that I, I just unfortunately feel like I can't safely treat. Or you know, you, you at least need to explain to them that um, nothing is known about the interaction between the regimen they're on and telaprevir, Or maybe there's some data from healthy volunteers um, at best. So again, when you're kind of considering using them off-label, I think it's very important to know what you don't know. And there are many unknowns, so I kind of highlighted to you that about the response-guided therapy and stopping rules. Those have not yet been validated in co-infected patients, although those studies are ongoing. Um, Whether patients who have cirrhosis and HIV, how how well they do with these treatments is not yet known. Those studies of co-infected patients included very few patients with advanced fibrosis. And then more issues that are, that are listed there. And then, of course, whether, it, whether they're covered, and particularly when you're giving um, efavirenz with the t- teleprivir, you often have to go to some length to get the drug company to cover the higher, or to get to get um, the insurance company to cover the higher doses of, of teleprivir that are needed. So uh, for those reasons, my first consideration for each patient I see who's co-infected at this point is a clinical trial. There is an open trial of boceprevir and PEG, interferon ribavirin that, um, that we at Cornell, and as well as some other sites in New York, I know Columbia, and I, I believe NYU are, are enrolling into. so it's one consideration. So what's next? Um, in terms of Treatments like we are using now, where you use PEG, RIBA, plus some DAAs, Um, the next generation of DAAs, some of which are being studied in co-infected patients, offer a lot of advantages. They're once a day, as opposed to the three times a day, teleprovir and biseprivir. They have less side effects. Some of them may have better SVRs, and some of them may offer even shorter durations. And then, of course, what the sort of holy grail of treatment is, is the all-oral interferon-free treatments. And so I'm going to briefly discuss some of those that have been presented. um, And then also particularly some agents that I think are a promise for co-infected patients since they have little in the way of drug-drug interactions. So this was the proof-of-concept study. It was sort of the pivotal study in terms of showing that Therapy with um, that that two DAAs can be combined without interferon or ribavirin, and in end up curing some patients who had hepatitis C. So. Um, four out of the 11 patients who were initially enrolled in the study ended up with SVRs um, without any interferon. And these were null responders. So these were sort of, they had prior treatment. They had absolutely no response. So they were the hardest-to-treat type patients. So this was very encouraging, but, you know, probably not good enough response rates to move forward with it. But what they did when they looked further actually found that both of the patients who were cured were genotype 1B and when there was a subsequent, or kind of same-time study going on in Japan that happens to have exclusively 1B patients, and it had um, extremely high cure rates. So again, small study, you know, tens of patients. Um, but it looked like, for, for at least for some patients, those with genotype 1B, all oral two-agent treatment may be an option. And so um, it's more data emerged. There was another uh, all oral regimen that looks extremely promising, and this one includes the GS7977, which now has a name, Sofosbuvir, uh, and Ribavirin. And what Sofosbuvir is is a nucleotide analog polymerase inhibitor. And I consider it's very similar to Tenofovir for Hep B. It has a very high barrier to resistance. It's uh, well tolerated, um, and it's re- you do not see. Area, to date, has not been seen on treatment breakthroughs with this drug, so there hasn't been resistance reported from um, treatment. And what they found was treating genotype 2, 3 patients with just 12 weeks of this agent with ribavirin alone, that they cured all 10 patients who were treated in that group. These were treatment naive patients. When it came to genotype 1, nil responders, almost everybody relapsed. Uh, after 12 weeks, so either maybe it wasn't long enough or maybe for some reason it's not potent enough. For the treatment naive patients, they had nine out of the 10, or actually 90% of them remain suppressed, but the data is only out four weeks after stopping treatment. Although in prior studies, if you were gonna relapse, it usually was within four weeks. So it looks promising, it's still very early. I think it'll probably be presented soon, the final data, maybe at ASLD. Another regimen to watch, so 7977 7, 7 is interesting because it doesn't, um, it's not a CYP3A4 metabolite, so I think it'll be easier to use with HIV uh, medications. The same holds for declatosphere, which is that class I talked about that's different. We don't have a similar class in HIV, the NS5A inhibitor. And when that was given together with Declatis, declatosphere with the GS797, with or without ribavirin, uh, Again, in small numbers of patients, 14 or 15 patients, but all of them were suppressed four weeks after stopping treatment, so that we saw, um, again, 100% response rates. And these small, you know, treatment-naive, small number of treatment-naive patients, but again, very exciting and provocative, and we'll see what what comes of studying more patients and, and following them further out, hopefully soon. Uh, there's an all-oral Abbott combination that uses uh, ritonavir boosting, uh, and c- combining um, either two or three Abbott drugs. This one used two Abbott drugs with ribavirin, and, and again, very high cure rates. More likely to have potential drug interactions with our, our co-infected patients, however, because of the ritonavir boosting, but you know, with 12 weeks of, of treatment only being necessary, perhaps patients could even take an HIV treatment holiday. If it you know if it was felt to be safe. So um, and then just to show you the last kind of exciting thing, it was the first data in co-infected patients with sofosbuvir, the 7977 drug. And what was seen was just a seven-day treatment study. But when compared to the historical data of um, mono-infected patients, very similar declines in viral load. And it's uh, across various genotypes. It didn't seem to matter about HIV regimen. It didn't seem to matter about race. So. You know, very early data, but exciting in terms of our co-infected patients. So, um, how do you put all this together? Because there's great things coming, but we have people who need treatment now, or do they need treatment? So, these are some of the, the factors I use to kind of make this individualized decision about treatment. And the most important is probably in terms of how advanced their liver disease is, and that's why you need some type of fibrosis assessment. Um, but you do have to remember, you know, the more advanced patients are probably gonna have poor responses and potentially have more side effects from treatment. Um, these are some of the other decisions. I won't go through all these in, for the sake of time, but how I approach each patient. So looking at, I borrowed this slide from um, Trip, but that we know how complicated HIV treatment was as recently as 1996, with three times a day, and you know, having to uh, worry about what people were eating and drinking and, and how simple it is now, we're getting one pill once a day. Hep C treatment's very similar stage, I feel like. Right now it's three times a day. It has to be given with 20 grams of fat, if you're talking about teleprivir, with food if you're talking about poseprivir. It has to be given with the weekly shot. Often we need to use, um, other agents to support people through the treatment, such as growth factors. And I think the future you may be just as promising. Certainly the data I showed you today suggests that it will be, so that I hope when I'm here talking, if I am, 10 years from now, or even maybe five years from now, we'll be talking about a a one-pill-once-a-day regimen for hep C. So thank you, and I have some questions, it looks like.
0: Thanks very much, Christy. Again, if people want to ask questions, please come to the mic. Um, we have some from the audience. Uh, the first one, uh, Christy, are you treating people with hep C who have renal impairments, and can you use these agents in that group?
1: The biggest barrier for treating the renal patients with renal impairment is the ribavirin and interferon, so, no, unfortunately. Um, If they have significant renal impairment, I'm waiting, hoping that some of these all-oral regimens will be an option for them. I mean, based on a lot of them are metabolized by the liver, so I think they should be options. The studies haven't been done yet, though, unfortunately.
0: Next question. Do we really need the lead-in period for Bosepravir, or is it an artifact of clinical trial design?
1: I... You know, there are theoretical reasons. It may be beneficial in terms of lowering the viral load so that resistance is less likely to emerge, allows steady state of interferon. I think it could be an artifact. I mean, they did compare both. This one did slightly better, having the lead-in for... um, in the BosepRevir studies, although they weren't powered to really see a difference, so I think they went with the one that looked the best, given those theoretical considerations. Tezeprevir also looked at a lead-in in their treatment experienced in their phase two studies, and or actually was it the phase one of their phase two or three? I'm forgetting now, but they did not see a benefit to lead-in. So I don't know. It does allow you to get some sense of interferon responsiveness. So if a patient after the lead-in has less than a log drop their chance of being cured goes down to 33% from, you know, what it was, a treatment patient. So it gives you some information that maybe in the future will be used as part of the assessment of deciding whether to continue with that approach or to add in another drug or something like that. Scott?
0: Can we get the mic up here? Thanks. Uh, Terrific talk. Thank you very much. Just a quick question. I may have missed it. In the study, the new study of directly acting antivirals that used... Ribavirin is a third drug, mm-hmm. without interferon. Did they tease out what ribavirin was doing in that study, because it's a magical issue. As right. Yeah, as as ribo- the mechanism
1: interferon. of ribavirin still isn't understood. I mean, I think people talk about, um, you know, viral uh, mutagenesis things like that, but I don't think anybody knows the exact mechanism. But there have been DA studies that used it did or did not include ribavirin, and in some of those, the, it was shown that ribavirin is still necessary. Now, um, the one I showed you with the cladosphere plus um, uh, sofosbuvir, so the GS-797 plus the cladosphere plus or minus ribavirin, it didn't seem to matter having ribavirin in that regimen. So it may, I think it probably depends on the potency of your regimen, your barrier to resistance. And, you know, ribavirin may not be needed, but I think it's definitely not something people are throwing out yet. So I think you'll see it in most of the regimen studied.
0: Thank you. Christy, can you comment on the need for liver biopsy in 2012?
1: So I think, as you know, treatment becomes more successful, easier to tolerate, um, shorter. The... We will just treat everyone, and it might not be necessary. But for now, I think the fibrosis assessment is very important in terms of making that individualized decision, both to whether or not to start treatment, and then I think it also may help patients decide whether to stick with treatment when they're having side effects. Um, so I do use it in 2012, but I hope you know not to in five years from now. But if, um, if you can't get liver biopsies, I don't think it should be, you know, the only piece of information you can use you can use sonogram you can do things like the non-invasive um, blood tests like the fibro, fiber sure fiber test um, that you know give you some information in terms of fibrosis assessment to help Scott
0: another quick question uh, uh, what would you do in acute HCV infection in mono infection or co-infection what would be your would you treat and if so with what
1: Yes, so that's a great question. So actually, anybody who has acute C patients, you can refer them to me. I have an ongoing study that's an um, observational study looking at risk factors. And I, I do offer treatment, and you should, to to all of your patients with acute C because it's uh, much easier to treat during that phase. There's cure rates approaching, depending which study you look at, 60 to 80 percent where you, um, you can use PEG interferon alone or for co-infected patients usually we use PEG interferon and ribavirin for 24 weeks so a shorter course of treatment high response rates Um, we do usually give it time to spontaneously resolve because 20% of patients will so usually it's 12 weeks after the time of diagnosis that you allow to see if they're going to resolve the infection on their own most patients probably won't and then should should be offered treatment so, yeah, my answer is I, it, I would treat both mono and co infected, and I'm happy to treat them for you if you're not comfortable with it.
0: <laughs> Christy, um, co infected person with high CD4s, treat Pepsi first, treat with ART first, or some combination?
1: That's a, that's a great question, and the ACTG had designed a study to look at that, and it enrolled Very slowly, and it was ultimately stopped. So, I don't, we don't have the answer to that question. Um, If they have very high CD4 counts, I think you can go ahead and offer Hep C treatment if they're otherwise ready for that. If you're not going to treat their Hep C, I do think HIV treatment is warranted. And, you know, I think the DHHS guidelines support that now, that based on cohort studies, uh, patients who are on, who have their HIV RNA suppressed, seem to have less fibrosis progression. Now, they're they're cohort studies, and they're usually kind of single biopsy studies, but the data that's out there suggests that's a benefit to patients in terms of suppressing HIV. So I'll go if the CD4 counts high, I'll do either order. If the CD4 counts very low, definitely I would prioritize their HIV.
0: Okay. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for staying.